Good morning and welcome to Northminster. Whoever you are, whatever has brought you to be with us this morning, we are grateful that you're here with us. Despite our inability to see one another's faces in these pandemic days, our belief has not wavered that you carry within you a piece of the image of God. And when we are all gathered together, even virtually, we can each see that image a little more clearly for your being here. So thank you for the gift of your presence. This morning, we had planned to proceed with Baptism Sunday, the service we had ready for last week, but then recognized that tomorrow is the day dedicated to remembering the life and words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that, we believe, is a more necessary story to tell for this particular cultural moment. I wanna offer one caveat before we proceed, though. When it comes to the great peacemakers and truth tellers of history, most often they are the ones who so deeply offended the systems of power that it cost them their lives. And so it's a common move for those same systems to strike back in one of the most subtle and insidious ways they can. We give them a holiday. We carve their likeness into granite or paint them onto stained glass and make of them an idol, dead and easily controlled. Many, if not most, of those who are most eager to quote MLK or Jesus or Gandhi or to call them a hero would have undoubtedly been less supportive had they lived in their own day. We do not want to make the same mistake today. Today, we are not celebrating the life of the safe and colorblind soldier for equality we are taught about in school classrooms. Today, we are celebrating the life of one who got so deeply under the skin of white people and racist power structures that it costs him his life. As you listen to the words of today's sermon, delivered in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. himself, listen well. Because if you are not affronted, even just a little bit, then it's a good bet that you're not actually listening to him, but rather the tamed version of him in your imagination. So, let us listen well. In order for us to do that, to settle ourselves and open our ears, let us start, as we always do, with words of blessing. Would you join me by taking a deep breath together? as we bless our time together, this morning based on the words of the prophet Micah. How shall we enter the presence of the holy? Shall we come with sacrifices, with money and offerings? Would the eternal care for a chorus of hymns or scriptures and liturgies to fill the air? What does the eternal ask from us? It is to be just and to be kind. It is to live in fellowship with the spirit that is God. Let us worship the God of justice together this morning. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This will prove that you are children of God. For God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and send to rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what merit is there in that? This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God. On Good Friday of 1963, eight Alabama clergymen published an open letter in the newspaper. In the midst of civil rights demonstrations, they counseled patience and forbearance, appealing to, quote, the principles of law and order and common sense. They urged protesters to wait. When the newspaper was smuggled into Birmingham City Jail, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not wait. He began writing this letter of response in the margins of that newspaper. What we will hear today is an abridged form of that letter from Birmingham Jail, read by Dr. King himself. I am grateful to Reverend Diane Keniston for her work in abridging the letter while retaining the substance of it. Much progress has been made in the intervening decades toward the enacting of the vision of beloved community that Dr. King so often preached. But as Dr. Ibram Kendi reminds us today, the narrative of progress is a deceptive one. Here we stand in the year 2021, and we are willfully blind if we do not acknowledge that there has also been progress in the cause of racism every step of the way in the last half century. Which is to say that Dr. King's words in this letter are every bit as applicable today as they were on the day they were written. May we hear them with open hearts. May we allow them to break our hearts. And may we find in the breaking the courage we need to face the challenges of our day. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. 
I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried there, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttleworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs, briefly removed, returned the others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we would present our bare bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. 
We began a series of workshops on nonviolence. And we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the sting dots of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, 
and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether the law is just or unjust? An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. An unjust law is a code that a numerical, a power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that as a result of being denied the right to vote had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which set up that state segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. I hope you are able to see the distinction I am trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as would the rabbit segregationists, that would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Of course, that is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal, refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly 
by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must, must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that white moderates would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see. It is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. 
human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below that environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race and still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevances and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama Mississippi and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp altar mornings. I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of a massive religious education buildings. Over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is our God? In deep disappointment I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. 
How could I do otherwise? Yes, I see the church is the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour, but even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. Never before have I written so long a letter. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr.
string out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take a pride in the name of love. What more in the name of love? In the name of love. What more in the name of Oh, oh, oh.